Good morning, all. This is Coffee with Jim. It's October 22nd and a balmy fall day here in Bethesda, Maryland. 64 degrees at 9 a.m. <laughs> and a crisp 34 degrees in the Twin Cities, Minnesota. I mentioned that location because our fantastic guest today joins us from St. Paul. In fact, Dr. Steve Smalley has been a member of the Health Partners Medical Group and Regions Hospital Leadership Team for the past 14 years, a physician leader, of course, for those 14 years. Steve has served on uh, several boards. He's been part of the American Heart Association Board for the Twin Cities. He was medical chair. He's part of the ACC's, the American College of Cardiology's Board of Governors, governor-elect for the Minnesota chapter of the ACC. And Dr. Smalley was named one of Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine's top doctors for the last years. And there's so much more. But Steve, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Great to see you. You're welcome. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. And I'm envious of your weather. We have snow on the ground here. Oh, amazing. Actually, I'm looking out the window here and I'm just now noticing that. Okay, so two different perspectives on autumn today. More importantly about Dr. Smalley, he is a paddy dive master, an avid outdoors person, former, is it offensive lineman, Steve? Offensive lineman, a guard to be exact. Musician, husband, dad, father of three, married for 29 years, and so much more. So, Steve, some quick, really important questions at the front end. Ready? Your favorite dive site? Cozumel, drift diving. Love the deep abyss of the drop-off and just cruising along there a mile an hour and just seeing what critters and creatures are out there. Awesome. Multiple choice question. Telemark skiing or snowshoeing or ice fishing? Oh, it's got to be cross-country ski, classic. And specifically, uh, I would say in the state of Michigan, there's a beautiful spot uh, right along a river. Love it when it snows and you can see the river running and, and on these beautiful tracks with hemlock trees. Glad you added that choice to the multiple choice. So you get half credit for that. How about this, rock or jazz? Rock, yes. Stones or Zeppelin? Oh, that's tough. Depends on the mood. Uh, it depends on whether it's Friday or, or Tuesday. I would okay. say I'll put the stones live. Okay, awesome. Well, let's shift now to our leadership discussion today, which is about the grounding power of vision. And I've had the great pleasure to work with you over the last couple of years. And I know people that have worked with you, some of the things they say about you, Steve, incredibly fair as a leader, high degree of integrity, collaborative, servant leader, principled. Steve, you and I have talked about having a North Star. And also something I said kind of at the tail end of the introduction was something you're really proud about is being a father of three and married for 29 years. Tell me about the grounding power of vision. What makes that important to you? Jim, first of all, I'd like to say it's been my pleasure working with you and, and having you with the coach to kind of consolidate some of these ideas that have, such as uh, grounding and, and vision and working with things that inherently I think most of us have an idea of having a vision of where we want to go to and realizing that we need to remain grounded so we can continue on the course that way. For me, being a leader, and I would say over to my personal life of being a father, having a vision of where you want to go is absolutely crucial to maintain a sense of meaning and purpose. Why am I making this decision today? It's because I'm moving towards this vision of a family or I'm moving towards balancing a career or getting my group to this point. Things come up in a day where Maybe there's a financial impact, maybe somebody's sick, maybe things don't appear to be pushing us towards that vision. But if we keep a vision in the distance, it's like sailing. 
the prevailing winds may change, but, but you have to change that sail. If you've got a vision of what island you're heading to, you'll probably get there. But if you don't, you may end up just blowing around out in the water. And I would say that grounded is critical on a day-to-day -day basis. The grounded, or you know, could call it resilience, is what keeps us able to go day to day. So on a day when you've got a vision of going, let's just use that metaphor of the island, and there's a squall, you use grounding in that moment to help get through that squall, whether it's your relationships, spirituality, exercise, your health. Staying grounded, which could be as simple as doing some breathing exercises, helps us get through the squalls and the daily noise while we're trying to achieve our vision. So critical things for me. Lots of time spent thinking about that knowing you that is a part of your dna tell me a little bit more the importance of having a vision as a healthcare leader uh, obviously we're in a, a crazy moment today a pandemic there's covid there's social unrest there's you know economic fallout how do you navigate that as the leader of a team very challenging i would say you know as coming into to the era with covid that was the ultimate kind of squall is coming into a, a pandemic that had not only health concerns let's just talk about that for a minute to frame it health concerns where we were worried about what we saw in italy and new york and our impacts to our health there were financial concerns cuts in salaries furloughs and then on top where we live in the twin cities jim this summer we had uh, the George Floyd case and the, and the social unrest with the riots and, and looting of police stations. So, so much of what we thought we knew just turned end for end. So as a leader and leading through that really depended on your, not only your personal grounding, but establish relationships with those around you and leaning on the ones who themselves had the most grounding and could be leaders to amplify your leadership. I really can look around my department and my colleagues and point out four or five people who are crucial, who had some like-minded vision and grounding. And even though, yes, it was scary times and things were upended, you really depended on those voices to amplify and help bring others along with us. So I'd say it was about the team of the people you were with and you had your backs and you had your vision that started before all this happened to keep us on track. And of course, it's still a work in progress. So it's the people around you, it's the pre-existing vision and sticking that vision and realizing there are going to be some bad days, but you can make it through as a team. Well, great stuff there, Steve. Any specifics on what do you look out for regarding burnout in others? Mm -hmm. How do you notice it? How does it show up? It's a good question. And I'll just be honest. I mean, I've lived through some burnout, as I think any honest physician will say. If they say they haven't had burnout, I'd be suspicious. You know, I can just say that I'll go... I'll start with myself and, and then I can talk about others. In, in the department chair, you have to get be able to be adept at looking at that. You know, some telltale signs are when you're just overwhelmed and you want to draw back and you're unable, you don't want to communicate with or you draw back from friends, colleagues, or peers. Things you're not, the, the interest, the love that you had for whatever you're doing seems to drop away and maybe seems to lose a little meaning. You get edgy or quicker with people and instead of having a conversation, it can be more directive. I can take that back one now and look at some of the department members. Signs would be combativeness with other people in the department. Showing up late, drinking, I think, is another sign. A difficult personal relationship, difficulty there. And then in extreme cases, I think people get extreme anxiety and depression that you might get a piece of it in the workplace with their interactions with others and some pretty dramatic issues, especially during COVID that we saw. So really all those things. And I think the, the challenge as a leader is to pick up the softer signs and maybe even better yet, pull from a wellness lens 
we're so good now, Jim, about having conversation about wellness, and you do a great job of this too. Talking about wellness and what it takes to be grounded before you run into the storm is the best thing we can do. COVID caught us a bit off, but our ears are perked now. So that's kind of the spectrum. Again, you've been through it firsthand and you, you've seen it around you. So you've also mentioned being in the Twin Cities, George Floyd back in May. You know, we're in a time now where medical misinformation about public health has been politicized. What's the impact of that on medical professionals, patients? Yeah, it's deep. I can just, you know, just we'll just start with a little story. Yesterday, I, uh, I was polling my own hospital. We tend to have 10 to 15 patients with COVID on ventilators at a time and maybe 20 to 30 hospitalized. So we do see it, have feelings about it. And providers, Jim, let's just take us back to March when we were seeing scenes of Italy and New York and how crushing it was to deal with the pandemic. And we here, we hadn't felt that yet, but what we knew was we didn't have masks. Our supply chain was brutally low. Uh, we didn't have N95s that we needed. And our supply chain vice president told me one day he was really thinking about how many garbage bags he should order because he was worried they'd be gone. So we came from a scarcity lens into this pandemic and it was supercharged with, you might die as a provider if you get this thing. So, so that's the backdrop. And so then segue to a month or two later, and in this crazy political time we're living in in the States, hearing on TV discussions about whether masks work or not is, is, has just supercharged the providers. And you know, in our state, we had a vice president visit one of our major medical institutions, refused to wear a mask. That strikes at our heart because we're around patients with COVID every day. I told you to take care of the events and the hospitals. We wear masks. A poll of our directors the other day said, we're not aware of really any providers getting COVID directly in line of contact. Why? We wear masks and shields. That's not an opinion. That's not political. If you wear a mask and a shield and you gown and garb, you, we're not getting it. We're around them. On the other hand, you go to one political event, it spreads because they're not masks. So providers are looking at this and saying, what is it that people don't get? Why has science been co-opted into politics and why has that allowed to be that way. You know, does it doesn't get into airlines. You don't get to have a say on jet safety or seat belts or helmets or drunk driving laws. Why why is it any different with wearing a mask in a pandemic? So it's a head scratcher. It really strikes and the healthcare workers have something to say about that, but it's outside of our circle. We're preaching to each other. It's hard to get out and capture that in Twitter and social media. And so sometimes we feel I think like our voices are are not heard as well as they might be, but we definitely take chance to talk to our patients and administrators. But I like that you asked that, that question. It's a very good one. Just to follow up then, so you mentioned, right, the vice president showed up without a mask. What does that do to the morale of the care provider team? And second, what should the medical professionals' roles be during a, a time like that? It's a good question. You know, that, that was, I think, what a lot of people were waiting to see is what's going to happen in this instance. Is this person, if I, for instance, had showed up without a mask coming into an area where there are mask requirements, I would have been dealt with as the rules of HR say, and it probably would have been a disciplinary action for not wearing a mask. And I guarantee if I showed up to the operating room without a mask to go in and do a transesophageal echo, I would not be, you can't get through a door without somebody pointing you and say, you don't have a mask on. And yet here is somebody who's allowed to use politics to walk through that. That's a big problem. So the effect is one of the, the providers look at it and say, this looks like hypocrisy, and this looks like a power struggle 
where we are on the wrong side of the power. Because in the OR, where we control the power, that provider's not coming in. In my hospital, I'm not coming in without a mask to an area that needs one. Yet here's the power that can override what I would call facts end up coming in. So it's, it sends a chilling message that power can override facts. Interestingly, Jim, the administrator, I talked to some administrators, our institution, one of them texted me after they saw that photo and this text was simple. It said, what kind of leadership is this that allows this to happen? Because somebody in that organization needed to exert their power though this is a person whose power is outside and say, no, this is not how we do it here. You can't go in the OR without scrub. You can't come without a mask. No, you can't fly a jet without proper training. You can't just make this stuff up. So that's, that's how it affected many people, I think, is that just the feeling of uh, hypocrisy and a call to better leadership in those situations. And again, being grounded and having a vision is critical. That, that's critical in those moments because otherwise, You'll just succumb to the feeling of the moment of maybe I should just let this person do it because they have power, et cetera. Again, all great points there, Steve. You're touching on something that many folks have asked, and that is, aren't professionals supposed to remain neutral in times like these? You know, and we've seen a lot of debates about yes and or no. When should professionals remain neutral and or when should they speak up? So what if we ask patients that, Jim? What if, what if you were a patient in, let's just take this for an instance, you have a medical condition, you came to see me. How many times would you want me to stay neutral when I'm offering you options rather than using my expertise and wisdom to tell you what I thought was really right? Mm. Can, I'm asking you that. Would you, would you ever come to a doctor and say, I just want you to spell my option and I'll choose what I feel is best, but I really don't want to know what you have to say. No, I would want your expertise. Presumably why we, <laughs> we train and do that. And, that's been my experience too, Jim, as the patients come in, there's usually the last thing they want to know is what would you do? Because they, if they trust you, if they trust you, then they value your opinion. They realize it may not be their own. They may decide something differently. But I would say, why is a pandemic and a mask any different of a medical condition than a knee operation or a aortic valve? The trust if you don't trust somebody, then that, that erodes away. But then I think, in my experience, has been that patients want their physicians and healthcare providers, and nurses are highly trusted too. So if you listen to what they have to say, and back to your point, what's our voice? That's our voice, should not be overridden. They, didn't, they don't come to you and say, hey, what does the governor think I should do about my knee? Or what does the president think I should do about my pneumonia today? You would never think they have the experience or wisdom to, to answer that question. So put trust in experts. Experts have knowledge and wisdom that helps them solve problems faster. That's so, yeah, I think we have a voice and I think we need to have it out there. Yeah. And I, I know your passion around that coming back to the core of your DNA and your North Star. Shift gears briefly to touched on George Floyd earlier, which raises just another question you know, let's say there's a, a challenging situation. If a medical professional is just is walking down the street and seeing somebody being apprehended and there are concerns about the physical health of the individual, have things changed? Have we learned anything, I guess, since May? So that's a good question. There's a lot of, there's a lot of questions behind that question. One thing I would ask you is, um, you know, if he, what's, as you look at that from a, um, a bystander, and let's just suppose I'm empowering you now, I'm assuming you, you probably know CPR as well, which is really what George Floyd needed. Yes. In that. So theoretically, any citizen that knew CPR could have intervened at that moment. 
And, you know, I just had this come up to my mind, Jim, was uh, that scene, isn't there a famous uh, video in New York where there's a pedestrian who's beaten or some, some crime goes on and people are walking by like it's not even happening. It's, it's used in psychology studies. I'm afraid I can't quote year. It's what is happening in our minds as humans at that moment where we're allowing something that's abjectly wrong, that if we can kind of get the slap in the face and say this isn't right, you would intervene. So whether you're a healthcare provider or a citizen, what is it mm. in that moment that holds us back? I think there's fear. There's a fear that there, there's a peer pressure. There's a, wow, how can this be happening in front of me? This, this doesn't seem right. So I think there are a lot of human emotions that go into that lack of responsiveness. And then there's a larger question of why, you know, I live in a town where we've had troubles even though we have great police force and I'm, I, they are very needed, there have been some serious issues uh, long-term with the mishandling of situations using high levels of force, lethal, probably only recently brought to light to the larger populations through media. And that's been going on for years. So I would say to healthcare providers, yes, we all have it. Uh, we should jump in and do CPR and you need to raise your hand and say, this is not right. This is not right. You need to assess that person. They're unconscious. They're showing signs of distress. Treat them as a human being. You need CPR. You need to switch out of detention or detention mode into CPR mode. So that needs to happen. We as providers should be able to say, this is wrong. That is not right. You need to do CPR delivered like that. Getting us to do that's tough. The broader question, Jim, I think too, is like, as providers, what do we own in the racial inequity, injustice, diversity conversations. And I think we need to be there more too, especially in the Twin Cities, with panels of police, with community members, changing it little by little so that we realize some of the implicit bias that we are not even aware of. And I know implicit bias is something you you talk a lot about. I'm just curious, you know, what do you think healthcare providers could be doing more of that they're not? Well, I, I couldn't have said it you know, any better than you did, Steve. I think a, a key point at the end there is it's a, it's a real collaborative effort in bringing all those stakeholders together, especially during the, these charged times. So simply put, I'll just restate that last point as a beginning of a, of a longer, regular dialogue. Yeah. What do you think? I, I think that, I think the dialogue is key. You know, when I would just an aside, uh, uh, of a couple of daughters who work in the cities and different organizations, and everybody wanted their response to the George Floyd piece right up front. You know, we need to have a, a website, we need to have conferences, we need to do this. So, and yes, we all need to raise our hands and say this is wrong. There are there's racial injustice. Black Lives Matter. We need to work on that. But then the longer haul discussions, the longer work, the vision, Jim, tying it back to a vision, a vision of where we don't have that racial injustice. That's longer work. That's yeah. months, that's years. Those are the things that we'll need to keep up. And I think our medical societies in Minnesota are engaged. I know they are around the country. And just keeping conversations. I've talked to police officers. I've known some in leadership. Discussing it. Don't let it get boiled down to a point of either you're for them or against them. It's not like that. This is wrong. We can work on that. We can make this better and it can't stand. Thanks for those great insights again, Steve. Well, look, in beginning to wrap up, we've touched a lot of topics and a lot of key topics today. How do we begin to summarize what type of medical leadership is required now? Yeah, that's a great one. And I wish I had the exact answer to that one. I'm, but I will start, let's start big picture. You know, for those of you who have not had the benefit or who are listening, who may be in leadership, and if you've not had the benefit, a little ad for you, Jim, uh, heartfelt, 
having someone like a coach or putting some, the leaders we need, letting leadership happen organically was something could happen for a few individuals, but not for many. I think, first of all, is intention to have good leadership is what we need, which means training people in the art and science of leadership. We are training the art, science, medicine, having coaches with like you who know not only the why, but help orient the leaders to their vision is critical. So grounded leaders who have their vision that's been kind of extracted from their meaning and purpose so that they can sustain the effort needed to achieve goals. That's big. Grounded, good vision. So take some courses, get a coach. I think we need people who really can put the needs of the patients. You know, we've always heard patients first. Yes, this is true. But that's like divorcing a foot from your leg. You have to have patients first, healthcare providers first, and organizations first all go together like a stew. You can't just focus on the potatoes, peas, the meat, or the tofu. If you're vegetarian, you've got to have all three. So we need leaders who can look at those, open your eyes to a larger lens. There are a hundred ways to solve salute or solve problems. We tend to go right to problems. We need to discuss first use our vision, and then cone in on the best solutions, keeping those distinct entities in mind. And that is not easy. And, and like I said earlier, you're as good as your team. Bring them along. The young doctors, the middle-aged, the older, all have a part to play. Inclusivity, bringing them in. I think those are the things we need to do. Wow. Great stuff there. Great insights, perspective. Thanks for your candor, your passion, Steve. What I'll say is continued best wishes to you and your family. And again, I'm lucky to know that firsthand, many of your uh, teammates, your colleagues, they, they greatly appreciate you and, and your leadership there. So continued yeah. success to you, family, uh, your patients, and your, your patient community. Thanks yeah. so much. This has been a great dialogue today. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for the opportunity. And thanks for being a great coach.